The views, information or opinions expressed in the following podcast are solely the views of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of any third party. Any information provided is of a general nature only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. In particular, you should seek financial advice prior to making a decision. Joseph, thanks for joining us again. It's it's becoming an often used uh, cliche in the current environment that things are changing rapidly and lots has happened over the course of the last week. Want to jump straight into it and get your views on a couple of those issues in particular. We've been talking a lot internally about the amount of relief that has been applied to the SME community. Just wanted to get your perspective on what the opportunity cost of all that additional leverage is in the in the SME market. Well, it's a great question. Frank, because obviously there was an immediate need to provide relief with the onslaught of this current crisis. So no, no one is questioning that. But of course, this relief is essentially new debt. And after six months or, or, or whenever, the, uh, when businesses start to look at how debt has been building up inside and, and households as well, there's a realisation that this debt has to be paid back. Uh, the, the big picture concern is that this relief debt, or let's call it COVID-19 debt, is what I would describe as unproductive debt. In other words, it's, it's debt provided in order to keep businesses alive, which was important, but it's not debt that has allowed businesses to invest and grow. And so when businesses come out of COVID-19, one of the imperatives is going to be about getting the business moving again and growing. And that might that might involve investment in technology, it might involve investment in refurbishing the business. But to do that, businesses are gonna have to be able to access capital. And the concern is that given the growth in unproductive debt, that many businesses won't be able to access productive debt to make those investment decisions. And this is a, a big problem at, at the macro level Obviously, different businesses are in different circumstances, but it's a big issue at at the macro level. It's a big issue when it comes to government, too, because government everywhere around the world have been um, growing their debt levels. Uh, It's a big issue also in households because a lot of households with mortgages uh, that have been impacted by COVID-19 have asked for holiday repayments, um, but that simply adds leverage to leverage. So... We're turning our minds to this because whilst at an individual business level it might not be a big issue, uh, if it's a significant issue at a macro level, it then becomes potentially a systemic issue that could affect everyone. So without wanting to over, overly theorise the, this problem, um, the, the, the fact is it's something that's got to be thought about, not in September when the six-month holiday period cliff arrives, the solution to this is going to have to be thought about now. And it, it does require both the government uh, and, uh, and the private sector or the banks to start thinking about a solution. My own personal view is that if you if you think about the debt relief, including the $250,000 government uh, guaranteed facility, this has really been about tidying things over for businesses, getting them through the crisis. And in many ways, you could characterize that as debt to help fund losses. Um, and therefore, and you could therefore then characterize that debt as actually equity in nature. Um, and clearly, 
businesses that find that they've got a higher level of debt post-COVID-19 than pre-COVID-19, one of the solutions to that problem might be to increase the amount of equity invested in the company. That then raises a bigger issue about how do privately owned small to mid-sized businesses get access to equity in a form and at a cost that would be acceptable to the owners. What do you think the the emotional response will be to that from the SME community? Because a lot of what you're saying is to potentially allow external capital into businesses that had previously been privately or family owned. Do you think that the the emotional barrier to that is going to be a significant one? Oh, no question. I mean, pe- people who've spent years, decades building up a business that is their business um, would find it very difficult in many, in, in many, if not most cases, to come to terms with uh, an external equity investor in the business. Because, it, I mean, equity doesn't come cheap and it doesn't come free of its um, various other cooks, if you will. Um, so that's a big factor, and, and that's why I mentioned that I feel it's really important that the government's involved in this solution. I mean, government was involved in creating, in inverted commas, a problem, because I don't want to characterise it as a problem, but it was government government initiative, government leadership that resulted in the various forms of uh, relief that has been provided to the business community and the household community. Uh, I don't think come the end of September that the government can then uh, use a hand sanitizer and say job done, that it has to be part of the solution. And um, um, and, and but with with the, with the banks, with the banks as well. So and, and a part of that solution actually, I don't I don't feel that that it would be acceptable for many businesses to have external equity coming in. Um, but what might be acceptable is some kind of hybrid equity. Let's say that that it becomes a um, a, a different class of equity rather than ownership equity that once the business has recovered and is performing in line with uh, at a level and this could take one two three four years but at a level where it can recapitalize itself or use or use profits to retire that equity so there should be a mechanism whereby that equity is paid back um, once the business can afford to do it rather than in terms of a contract where you've got to pay it back every month or every every after three years. But I think a, a satisfactory solution would be that once the business reaches a certain level of profitability, a certain level of cash flow, then the business owner has an option to retire some of that equity. Uh, and therefore, the providers of the equity, let's say the government and the banks, uh, have a mechanism whereby they can get paid back. And then, and then over time, we get back to a situation where the business is owned fully by its current owners. Its balance sheet is strong enough to support um, its continuation and its growth. And it's not encumbered by high levels of debt that actually make it very difficult for businesses to grow. And also the idea of actually running your business simply to pay back the debt, that, you know, that's, that's at a level you, that absence COVID-19 most businesses wouldn't wouldn't contemplate is equally not a satisfactory way to think about um, the future. Really fascinating, Joseph. I, I, one of the staying on the same topic, um, one of the more emotional water cooler topics, if you like, has been what does the 
the public sector purse look like at the end of this? And um, more specifically, how do we repay the significant amount of public sector debt that has been utilised to provide the emergency measures into small businesses in particular, but into the economies of the world more generally? And there are two broad schools of thought. There is the austerity type measures, and we saw the European experience with that outside of the, the GFC. And then I read a fascinating article in the New York Times recently by Paul Krugman that talked about the World War II experience in the United States, where effectively the debt was never repaid and they and they grew out of it, and debt to GDP levels normalised over time as the economy grew. Do you have a perspective on what the preferred method is and what the likely outcome of all this is? Oh, my sense is it's going to be a combination of both. I mean, the, the level of debt taking on the public balance sheet or on the government's balance sheet um, uh, is at a level now almost unprecedented with our, in most major countries. And the, the problem with that level of debt is it does, again, going back to the early conversation about business, it does potentially constrain a government's capacity to uh, exercise fiscal policy, be that through infrastructure investment or um, tax cuts. So my sense is that given the level of debt that, that sits on the government balance sheet, um, that we are in for a period, and, I, and I'm thinking 10, 15 years, not one or two years, um, but a period of um, tightening around um, taxation, in other words, higher levels of taxation, uh, at, combined with um, uh, austerity. So the gov- a lot of government planned expenditure will be cut back. Um, one hopes, of course, that, the, that there'll continue to be investment in essential infrastructure because that an unwillingness or an inability to invest in infrastructure is a double-edged sword because the very growth that the economy needs to correct this highly indebted position over time is going to depend on the ability of the economy to grow, which in turn depends on the largely on the degree of investment in the economy. Uh, I think it's a fair assumption over the course of the next, certainly the next three years, that the government can't look to to consumption in the GDP formula as the driver of, of um, growth, because we've got a household sector that is highly indebted. It was highly indebted before COVID-19. It's going to be even more indebted post-COVID-19 in an environment where we're going to have higher levels of unemployment, that's, I think that's almost a certainty. Um, and also, um, given that, uh, wage wage restraint. So there's not going to see a lot of growth in income. Uh, combined with the fact that we're likely to see higher levels of income tax. So putting aside the question of tax reform, that's a more complex issue. Uh, the future really looks like higher total taxes uh, and um a higher level of uh, government investment in infrastructure, but a, a broader austerity program because uh, government balance sheets are going to be quite highly leveraged. So it's complex. And relatively speaking, Australia remains in, relative to most other developed economies. The, the fiscal balance sheet here is still strong, even though the level of debts have grown significantly under COVID, but it still remains quite strong. Um, but I think, you know, those are the realities that we're facing into. There's no, I, I don't think that you can plan on the assumption that this debt's going to go away. Um, the, the great thing about after the Second World War 
was the investment made in critical infrastructure. And of course, then we've basically a golden period of economic growth um, with a few um, periods, pauses in between. But the global economy since after the 19, uh, late 1940s has shown huge growth. Um, should, could we expect a similar growth over the next 20 years? Hard to see that, frankly. You can see it in China, you can see it in some of the developing economies around the world. Um, but when you look at some of the issues that the, the developed economies are facing into, um, seeing GDP growth uh, beyond one or two, two and a half percent is difficult to see over the next 10 years, uh, in my opinion. Joseph, shifting our gaze to international affairs, um, the, Scott Morrison was in the press this morning suggesting that we would not trade our, um, you know, our trade performance for our values, um, with a, which was perceived as a thinly veiled commentary on the uh, Chinese-Australian um, fracturing relations over the past week. Just keen to get your views on this. Well, the two thoughts come to mind. Uh, um, first of all, I, I don't worry too much about the rhetoric that you hear from politicians. I mean, quite often what you find in the world of diplomacy is, is an understanding that, that senior politicians have got to say something to uh, a community that kind of is looking for a government to stand strong. But behind the scenes, n not always, but quite often, there's a very different kind of dialogue going on, but we don't know about that. But that's normally what you would find. In, in this particular case, um, I'm really quite concerned about tension between Australia and China. Uh, I, I just don't see any upside in this for Australia. I mean, I, I understand why the Americans and the Chinese get into tit-for-tat, uh, stone-throwing stone each other. But given how dependent we are as a country on China for exports and for some imports, uh, for you know, the housing market here has been underpinned in a large part by Chinese, and certainly in the inner city area, by Chinese investment. Our universities rely heavily, the education system relies heavily on Chinese support. Um, so why, why would you pick a fight with your biggest customer, uh, given that your negotiating position is not strong? I mean, in, in relative to China, we are a pimple on the back of an elephant. And so picking a fight with uh, such a critical partner uh, leaves me scratching my head on trying to understand why we would want to do that. Um, if you take a worst case scenario where those, these relationships do deteriorate um, beyond the serious position they're in today, then it'll come at a great cost to the Australian economy. Uh, it won't impact China much at all because they will go to other sources for their supply. Um, uh, they may have to spend, pay more money for that, but they, they have very they have more options than we we have. So I do hope that the tone on this political um, rhetoric uh, dials down a few notches. And I do hope that that behind the scenes diplomacy that I mentioned uh, is working hard to make sure those relationships um, recover uh, once things settle down a bit. Um, the Australian position is quite disappointingly uh, quite a concern 
Uh, it's seen politically by the Chinese, of course, is simply uh, doing the barking for the Americans uh, and, and pointing to COVID-19 as a, uh, the sources of COVID-19 as a big political issue. Uh, there's no question that at the right time, it's going to be important to have an independent investigation into what caused COVID-19, but that should be an unemotional um, exercise done when things have settled down so that we can all learn. Um, but start, start calling out for an, an, an inquiry whilst we're still in the midst of the battle, so to speak, uh, just seemed to me to be very poor judgment and to be more political rhetoric than a genuine um, desire to understand what caused it and what lessons can we learn. Thinking locally again and, and the domestic response to um, the current pandemic, Scott Morrison released his three-point uh, plan for re-emergence. Just keen to get your views on um, the, the contents of that plan. Oh, I, I thought it was well thought through. And, you know, the, the political leadership um, on this matter has been outstanding. You know, I mean, people might say, well, we government spent too much and JobKeeper scheme was too, too ambitious. But at the end of the day, what we were looking for was decisiveness. And that's what we got. Uh, you're never going to get perfection when you're dealing with a, an unknown crisis uh, such as the one that we all faced into. But I thought, I thought the Prime Minister in particular um, exemplified leadership. Uh, and so full credit to him. I also feel that the government with the three-stage three, three stage, uh, step out of COVID-19 has, has thought it through very properly and has given a clear roadmap. The frustration in all of this is there's not so much uh, in, with government in Canberra, it's state governments and the inconsistencies that we are having to live with. We've seen the, the New South Wales government announced that pubs and restaurants have said are going to open up at the weekend. Um, we've seen in, in Victoria just a, a whole lot of mixed signals. Uh, people can't get on with their lives because of school, even though the, med the schooling arrangements, even though the medical advice is that schools are safe. Um, the government seems to be, the Prime Minister, the Premier, I should say, seems to be relishing this unexpected power uh, that, he ha that he has as a result of this camera and, and leveraging it, milking it. Um, but is he doing it in the interest of the economy and society? question mark in my view. Again, there's some really mixed messages. Um, it's quite okay for the, you know, for EFL to start getting back into contact training, and yet, and yet the rest of the economy is kind of being told that we can't uh, congregate or we can't open businesses. So my, my concern is um, that the leadership and the agility of leaders uh, outside Canberra has proven to be a mixed experience, and and you know, and, and I think some 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 of the politicians are enjoying this rush of power, if you will, to the head, and they don't want to give it up. They enjoy being in front of the TV cameras two or three times a day and and looking at the polls, um, and not really taking a holistic view on the implications of the current um, approach on the wider economy and on society generally. You know, we, we've talked in the past about the concern about mental health, the concern about relationship break, breakdowns that, that, that anecdotally seem to be 
um, increasing significantly as a result of this. And just general pressure on families that are just not accustomed to being locked in uh, uh, in the way that we have been and are increasingly saying, well, I understood this in the first two or three or four weeks because you've got to be safe, but are we overdoing it now? Um, is a question mark. And you only have to look at the amount of traffic on the roads in the morning versus four weeks ago to see that a lot of people are actually voting with their feet or voting with their car and are going to work. And, uh, and people want to get back to some semblance of normality as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, the goodwill or the, the uh, success that the politicians have had um, in the polls and in public opinion as a result of their decisiveness early on might start to erode quite quickly because of their apparent lack of the, uh, indecisiveness, if you will, that now become, is now seeming more and more evident. You actually stole my follow-up question to the to the um, sort of national commentary, Joseph, in relation to the, the performance of the national cabinet, the, the formation of which has been a peculiarity that we've not seen before, certainly not for many years. Do you have any sort of overarching comments in relation to how that has performed in terms of its cohesion since the beginning of the crisis through now and what its relevance will be going forward? Well, I think at the beginning of the crisis, it looked quite fragmented. I mean, you had um, the Premier in Victoria coming out and preempting one of the first meetings by saying that Victoria was going to do X, when actually it was, that was one of the topics for discussion um, in Canberra. So it, it, se it seemed at the beginning that, that it was quite a fragmented church, but over the course of the last four weeks, it has seemed to become more united in its communication um, but of course, then we saw the, the Prime Minister announce the three-stage uh, step out of COVID-19. And then you're starting to see a very uh, fractured approach by the various states, uh, which I don't think is a good thing because people sitting in Melbourne will be looking at the more liberal approach taken in, in Sydney and saying, why can't we have that? And then, you know, people wanting to travel to WA still can't travel across state and yet the the number the number of um, incidents of COVID-19 infection uh, and the fatalities that are associated with it now seem to be very 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 much under control not not to say that the risk is gone because I wouldn't suggest that for a second and and one of the big risks uh, and concerns that I'm sure the politicians um, have on their minds is the is the prospect of a second spike um, because the ability to then to go back to where we were at the beginning of COVID-19 and lockdown uh, is going to be quite a challenging thing to prosecute. And so I think great start, no, sort of fragmented start, unity, it seems to me right now it's becoming quite fragmented. The, the, uh, the real standout politician in all of this, I think, has been the Prime Minister. Joseph, as usual, very thought-provoking and extremely candid. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next week. Great. Thank you very much, Frank. The company is the owner or licensee of all intellectual property rights in this podcast, including but not limited to the copyright and any rights in the designs. You are permitted to use the podcast for personal use, but not for commercial use, without a license from us. You may not make any recordings of or otherwise copy the podcast.